My name is Mike, and I am your MC for the evening. We're doing uh, now what actually, I was telling somebody earlier, actually, we started Scum of the Earth Story Night because I needed a break, especially when Reese and Five Iron were gone on tour. And uh, so I thought, well, well, we'll just have people, you know, tell their stories. I, I had memorized this, this verse in the Bible from Psalms, and it went, um, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, is what it said. I think it should be up there. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those that he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. And I have to say that even though maybe I did it because I was feeling a little tired or a little lazy and didn't want to preach again. It's probably been one of the best decisions I ever made. Uh, And Story Night has consistently been uh, one of the most powerful evenings we do on a consistent basis. So we've just chosen three people who will come up and they'll talk about their life with Jesus in some fashion. So... I'm going to pray. Let's uh, pray that they are calm and collected. And uh, more, let's pray that our hearts can be open to whatever it is that God may want to share with us through their stories. Lord Jesus, we give this time to you. Ask that you would make these folks bold. Give them clear thinking. Don't let them stumble over their thoughts or their words ask that in the end that you'll be glorified, Lord, as you have entered into their lives and they have told about it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have three people coming up tonight. The first will be Dan Craig. Dan is a councilman for here for Scum of the Earth Church, been with us for a long time, a worship leader in the past. And uh, then he'll be followed by Evan Perkins, who is on staff and helping to head up the Scum Study Center. And he will be followed by Amber Skaggs. Okay, Dan. Thank you very much. I, sp- I spend a significant portion of my life outside of SCUM uh, giving presentations in front of people and uh, sometimes singing in front of people. Um, so I was really surprised today when I thought I was going to throw up uh, making notes to speak to all of you. But uh, I think part of what it points out to me is um, part of what I'm kind of what I want to talk about is how this place and how. Um, how Jesus for me has been um, a challenging but welcome escape from from uh, places where I know how to do things well and places where um, where I know I can fit in and uh, scum has definitely been a place like that for me so uh, I think so I've had the opportunity to have a bunch of uh, interviews over the last couple of weeks and basically it's round after round of someone staring you from across the desk and asking you uh, who are you? Why are you here? And what do you have to say about yourself? Uh, one guy literally asked me, he looked down at my application, he said, who is Craig? Um, and I, 
I thought we could get really philosophical. We could really, I would like to explore this right now. Uh, but he was looking for a more concrete answer. And that's what I'll give you to start with. So who I am is Daniel Craig. I'm on council here, like Mike said. Uh, I'm 30 years old. I'm Caucasian. I am a male. I am American. I am a son of two people. I'm a brother to two people. I'm a husband of one person. I am uh, a future father of that person's baby. Um, I am in varying degrees a musician, a writer, a medical student, uh, in varying more degrees a stubborn, lukewarm, self-centered, weak-willed sinner who uh, has been saved by God's grace through believing in Jesus Christ. And uh, I think when I really, the word I kept thinking of when uh, I thought about why I was here was uh, loneliness. And um, I think that's really been a lot of the theme of what's gotten me to this point and even this point in church. Uh, I was raised going to church as a little kid and had parents and family who taught me about God and um, and raised me in that in the context of that faith. I remember giving my life to Christ when I was 10 years old very clearly uh, and very sincerely. I think especially when I was really young, I had I felt a real I felt a real connection to God, uh, which uh, middle school did a good job of evaporating for me. Um, and most of my adolescence was characterized by uh, basically apathy toward God. I would have always said that I was a Christian, but I would have been hard-pressed to point out any part of my life where that was having any real impact. And um, I think uh, when I look back at those years, I really I had been uh, given a lot of gifts uh, in a worldly sense of things I was able to do. I was, I was gifted athletically. I was, I was good at school. Uh, but I had no, I didn't really have any sense of higher purpose for what I was doing. And, um, I think when, in that situation, then my motive, I didn't have any reason to do anything. So my motivations, uh, settled into, um, uh, earning others acceptance and seeking my own pleasure, which when you're a, a cocky and relatively capable 17 year old can, can cause some problems. So I think what that led to for me was uh, kind of stumbling gradually into um, into sin and temptations and uh, and I think really being sort of sort of a tool uh, for a chunk of my life there um, but I was for better or worse able to cover over a lot of that stuff with my uh, achievements and my affability you can you can get away with a lot of things when you can, uh, when you're good at other things, and when you have a uh, winning smile and good eye contact and a firm handshake. So, which are not bad skills to have, but um, yeah. So that's I think when I graduated, when I graduated high school, I really, uh, um, I'd been through a period of I guess what I would call kind of half-hearted rebellion. Uh, I never really. Uh, I feel like I never really got to any point where I was in such extreme trouble that it raised a lot of alarms or drew a lot of attention, and I was always uh, what people would call a good guy, with probably with air quotes, depending on who you asked. Um, but I felt I, I felt I felt basically unknown, uh, and I didn't know what to make of that because I was also uh, very overconfident. And I remember my dad asking me once when I was, I think, eighteen. He just was like, "You really think you know everything, don't you?" And I, I think I said something back like, yeah, I mean, and I honestly thought that. I thought, what is there to know? Like, how hard is this really, you know? Uh, 
I don't know what everyone's struggling with. So that's how I left. That's how I left the nest at that point. And uh, so my big, uh, the, the big pivotal year when I look back is my first year of college. And I think for me it's marked by um, settling into a real dissatisfaction with myself. I thought I was going to go someplace and kind of reinvent myself and figure out what I was all about, and I didn't. And I had uh, reached all these places and goals that I thought I wanted and uh, was horribly unhappy and really depressed, and I felt um, I felt really lonely. And uh, I think that was because on the surface everything I was doing looked okay. Uh, and it made it really hard for me to know, even be able to explain why I was feeling what I was feeling or uh, where I was coming from. And I struggled with a lot of guilt, um, but I didn't have any reason to explain it, and so I didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, and my uh, my atheistic uh, but very wise roommate uh, was a great was a launching point for me. His name was Ryan Weber, and I'll never forget him because we were freshman year roommates, uh, but also because there was one day when he got so sick of me complaining about myself that he just looked at me. He's like, "Either you have to either stop doing what you're doing, or stop feeling guilty about it." And I thought, that's the most profound thing I've ever heard in my whole life. <laughs> that is, got to write that down. That should be, that's a whole, that's a book in itself, you know. But it really spurred for me, I really, it made me ask a lot of questions that no one had made me ask before. Um, like, what is guilt? And am I really here? And does it, ma- like, does it matter if I am or not? And uh, is there such thing as good or evil? Like, it really, I mean, I think those are questions that we all have to face, but I really hadn't before. And I think I'd gotten to a place where I was so just kind of miserable that it forced, I had no other choice but to really look at that stuff. And I think God really found me in those questions. And I was surprised that the answers came as firmly as they did when I was really honest about it. I thought it would, I thought it would be a lot harder to come to those conclusions. But I think when I really, when I really honestly asked if I thought there was such a thing as something really good, and I, I knew that, it, that there was. And I, so I believed that there was a God, and I didn't know what that meant for me at all. Um, but I started... Uh, I started reading my Bible because it was the only book about God that I had in my room at the time. Um, and because that's where, I, that's where I was raised. It's the first place I knew to look. Uh, and I decided I'd read it just cover to cover because that's how I read everything else. And uh, that didn't last very long. Because God put a lot of really boring books at the beginning. Uh, and I think he did that to push us to talk to each other and, and commiserate about, about finding other ways to connect to God. Um, so I met, I met this guy, Jamin, uh, who, uh, we shared our testimonies by me finding a Bible in his room, uh, during a rousing game of beer pong and asking if he read it. And he said, yeah, I read it. I was like, oh yeah, I I read it too. And then we were brothers and he, uh, (laughs) so I said, well, what do you, what do you, uh, read? Cause Chronicles is wearing me out. And he said, oh, the best books to read are Job and Ecclesiastes, my favorite books, uh, which are great books, but a difficult place to start. Um, so those are the first books of the Bible that I read on my own, Job and Ecclesiastes, and uh, that was not comforting, either of those books. Um, but I did, there was a verse I wanted to share with you that's been a huge, like a life verse for me, um, that's from Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 2, 10 and 11, where Solomon says, uh, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done 
and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And I thought, um, I never, uh, I couldn't imagine anyone summarizing everything I had felt so well that I felt like I, uh, that's exactly where I was at the time. And whenever I think of Solomon, even now, I just think of this incredible loneliness of being a king that's that wise and that rich, um, but has recognized the meaninglessness of it all. And for him personally, probably too, has, has walked away from his faith in a lot of ways uh, when he was older. But that meant a lot to me. Um, so I was reading that, and I was uh, also, at the same time, this is when I really be, kind of became a musician more on my own. I was writing a lot, and that became, um, it became a real escape for me and tapped into another a part of myself that wasn't about achievement and it wasn't about pleasing anybody, and it allowed a lot of space for... Uh, for questioning and for expressing your loneliness and expressing your guilt and for seeking. There's another part of Ecclesiastes I didn't write down where it talks about how God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And this, this yearning for that is a constant uh, struggle that we never meet. And I really felt that. Um, and I was also listening to a ton of uh, Radiohead and Pedro the Lion at the time, uh, which combined with Job and Ecclesiastes made me a pretty morose Christian. Um, so, yeah, it was, yeah, it was very sad, but it was, it was good for me. Um, but I had a, there's a, so I, there's a, Job, I tried to, there's no good verse in Job to really summarize anything, I don't think. But what I identified with in that book that really did speak to me was uh, this man who's going through all this suffering and none of his friends understand it. And they go round after round, if you haven't read it, where he'll, ex, he'll express something and then his friends will chime in and, and tell him what they think is going on, and they never get it right. And you just sense his frustration that he feels so alone and not being able to just be understood at all. And that's really how I felt. Um, so I sought out a fellowship because I, I just needed to kind of figure out what was going on. And I tried to sneak into a fellowship of Christian athletes meeting. Uh, I got there late on purpose, hoping I would just sneak in the back, just because I saw a flyer that said Christian on it. So I went, and I thought I'd sneak in the back and just watch and see what they talked about and if I liked it. And I was the first one there because they were all late, and the guy that led the meeting just pulled up a chair about six inches from me and just stared at me. And he's like, Who, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Why should anyone care that you're here? Um, which was, and he was a nice guy, but he really put me on the spot. And I was like, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I was like, well, you better figure that out. My name's Dave. Let's go hang out after the meeting. We'll talk more about that. And he became the guy that really, that really showed me the gospel for the first time and made it real to me. Um, in a way that allowed me to really accept it that year when I was 19 and kind of gave my life and my faith again to Christ. Um, so I think uh, I'm, trying to not, I'm trying to not go too long here, but I wanted to briefly talk about what, how I got from there to scum because I think there have been a lot of days at scum I felt really weird about being here, especially when I first started coming because I just remember sitting there thinking, I'm the guy that everyone in here hated in high school. You know, and I, I have not, the world has not left me out. You know, God's put me in a place where I could walk into any church and, and definitely in Colorado and fit in if I wanted to. You know, like I, I knew how to play the game. I knew how to do that. And, um, but that was the source of a lot of things I didn't like about myself and a lot of places that I learned to cover over who I really was by being able to do that. And I think scum meant a lot to me because, uh, it took me a long time to be accepted or to make friends here. But 
it was a place that I knew I couldn't impress anybody with what I'd done or fake my way through um, being respected about something. And that's always, that's meant a lot to me about being here. Uh, I came to Scum, you know, we all have different stories about why we got here, but uh, I went to, when I got back from college, I, went, I was in the habit of going to shows by myself because I didn't have a lot of friends that were here uh, at the time. And I went, I went to a Pedro the Lion Starflyer 59 show at the Bluebird in 2003, which was a great show. Um, but I met Tim Dunbar at the bar at the Bluebird, who was also there alone. And just like Jamie and I had done before, we shared our testimonies by uh, name-dropping quasi-Christian bands. And uh, and we knew we were brothers when he said something about Bebo Norman or someone like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with Norman, you know. Uh, I'm, familiar, I'm familiar with Norman. I've heard of Petra before. Um, so he told me to check out the church. And the first day I came was at the toll gate. And uh, I don't know how many of you guys remember Gothic Nathan, but it was one of the days where he erupted in the middle of a sermon. And it was, there was profanity, there was laughter, there was a lot of awkward discomfort, there was pizza, uh, there were people smoking outside, which I really, which really intrigued me. Um, and I loved it, and it took me, it was a year and a half after that until someone really talked to me. Uh, but I stuck it out, because I was so fascinated by that. Um, so I think a lot of my, uh, you know, it's easy to say, like, well, that's how I came to Christ in church, and now... Almost 10 years later, it's just kind of et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think any of those themes for me have really changed. You know, I still, um, that sense of not belonging anywhere and that sense of fighting a feeling of being alone and not being understood, um, and especially a sense of being uh, unfortunately able to cover over my sins and my struggles really well, uh, those are all things that are still really real to me, and it's not... um, you know, those are things that still happen. My, in my sort of other life, I'm a medical student, and it's just it's very strange to go back and forth into that environment where you are, you are a list of your accomplishments in a way, and you learn how to play the game, and you learn how to jump through the hoops to get what you want, and you're taught to be very, very ambitious. And um, I don't know. I think it's, it's a still a struggle for me to go from that to being the, the man that I want to be and the husband that I want to be, and it's a little scary to think about being the father that I want to be. Um, but I think that's why I love Scum so much. I think that's part of why we're all here is that we offer each other like an example of the way that God accepts us and um, reminds us that we don't really belong anywhere. You know, we don't really, any of us even really belong at Scum because it's a bunch of people that don't belong anywhere else. So we don't really belong here either. Uh, but it reminds me that that's okay and to allow, allow for more of that. And the last couple of verses I wanted to share that have meant a lot to me uh, I read a lot of the Bible, and I was able to understand it theologically, but I still was having trouble wrapping my head around like what the underlying purpose was of it. And uh, I remember the, I'll never forget the first time I read this verse because I started crying, and I, I don't think I will right now, but it really, uh, it really hit me really hard. And this is from Matthew, this is Matthew three sixteen and 17 when Jesus is getting baptized. Uh, and it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. Sorry. I haven't cried in a long time. I didn't anticipate this. And a, a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Uh, and I thought, that's, 
that's what I want. Like that's, it was this incredible picture of, um, I didn't know what I wanted from God, but that's what I wanted to hear. Sorry. Um, and I think it, uh, I think it meant so much to me because because those are words that I'd heard from my own father when I was little. And I realized kind of what I had uh, I realized how much I'd taken for granted and how thankful I was for that. Sorry, but, uh, it felt so it felt so familiar, and it was really unsettling, and it was really amazing. But I, it just reminded me of, of the fact that I I had known a little bit of what that feels like as a kid, and then had spent a long time trying to find that uh, in so many other ways, and it felt so it felt so uh, completing in a really good way that this was God kind of closing that circle that. You know, you were, you knew this as a kid, but that's what you wanted to hear from your father. And, and this was God telling you that again, you know, as your, as kind of your father in another way. So anyway, sorry, it's very, uh, it's very emo talk that just turned into, um, (laughs) but it's, my dad's here tonight too. So it's, it's something that uh, we've haven't, uh, really talked about before. So it means a lot to me that he's here, um. So anyway, that's all. That's that's my. I'm sure that's more than the time it was allotted. But I thank you for letting me have the space to speak, and I'm more grateful than uh, I can say that Scum has let me be a part of, uh, let me be a part of the community here, and be a, a huge piece of why I continue to kind of run away and run back to God with all of you. told Dan to suck so that I would look better, but he didn't. <laughs> he didn't do that. Um, hi, my name's Evan. Uh, I'm going to take this thing out. Um, yeah, I'm, Evan. I'm just going to tell the story of my conversion, because Mike said I, I have to do that or, or a significant event, and so... I'm just going to do the conversion. So just to spoil the ending, that stops, you know, like at 17 for me. So there's a lot of fun things that we'll miss out on. But if I told everything, then, you know, about like 11 o'clock, you'd just get mad and would leave. So I got to, I've already wasted 35 seconds. So I got I to gotta go fast. Um, so I grew up in uh, Houston, Texas, which is a terrible place. Um <laughs> And I, I didn't really grow up in a Christian home, uh, but I grew up in a Christian culture, uh, which a lot of you probably can relate to in some respect. Um, and in Houston, uh, in the 80s, you were either, you know, it was culturally Christian. So, you know, again, in, in Houston in the 80s, you were either a Christian or you were an atheist. And 
you know, nobody wanted to be an atheist because then that meant that you hate rainbows and puppy dogs and that, that you worship Satan and, you know, they just, nobody understood. So everybody said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And um, Christianity, just my, my childhood, the, the whole time I thought it's, it's two things. Number one, it's extremely hypocritical. And number two, it's just dumb. Um, it has no, like, basis in reality at all. So hypocritical in that I thought, you know, you say that you love Jesus and Jesus is supposed to make a difference in your life, but you're no different from me at all. Um, you don't love anybody any better than I do, and you don't care about, you know, flying around or whatever Jesus did. I don't know. Um, so it was hypocritical. and It was dumb in the sense that it, it just made... Again, it had, like, no connection with the real world. It was just these, like, emotional words people would use. So if you, if you remember being, um, if you went to public school, you had assemblies. If you remember, they'd, like, pile you into the gym. And, and it, like, it was either don't do drugs or have self-esteem. Um, <laughs> and the self-esteem people would come in, and they couldn't talk about anything real because it was public school. So they'd come in, and they'd, you know, inevitably they'd say, just some some bullcrap, like, like you know, like shoot shoot for the stars on rainbow dreams of hope, you know, and and everybody's like, yeah, you know, like I'm gonna shoot, and you get home, and you're like, well, what, what the hell, like that doesn't that doesn't mean anything, like I don't have rainbow dreams really, and I don't know how I can, so that's what Christianity was, uh, it was just this emotional Jesus talk and. Um, so it was dumb. Um, so enter about 12 years old. I don't know why it happened then, but I just decided uh, my life primarily is going to be about, um, one thing and that's going to be acceptance from people. So I was kind of an awkward kid. Um, I, I just didn't really fit in with, with any group. I was not athletic, but I kind of looked athletic. Um, but I, I couldn't catch a ball, like, just at all. It was really... And when you're, like, a boy and you're 12, and it's it's a hard time. Um, so it wasn't athletic, couldn't play sports. People thought I ought to be able to. I don't know why. And then... Uh, I, but I wasn't... Um, also wasn't really smart. Like, I'm not stupid, but I wasn't super smart. So I couldn't hang out with, like, the nerds. So it's like, well, the, the athletic people don't like me, you know. But then the nerds, I can't hang with them because I can't do physics and stuff. So... Um, I just, I never really fit in anywhere. Girls didn't really give me a lot of attention and whoops, this came right off. Um, <laughs> even now I just don't, I can't do anything. I got it. Thanks Mike. I appreciate it. Uh, so I was, I was just plagued with, and humor is, is kind of also what developed out of that. Right. So, I, um, I was just plagued with this insecurity about who I was. Um, it's terrible fear of rejection and this feeling of not uh, being accepted anywhere. And um, so I just, I started becoming, you know, what do you do when, when you don't fit in? Um, if you don't accept it, I guess you change um, to get acceptance, right? So I stopped becoming really who I was and I started changing. So I was this guy, you know, over here with these people and I was this guy over here with these people. And um, what I found out was that I was really good at that. So I was, you know, I was kind of like a fake Dan, I guess, in that, I wasn't really good at these things, but I could, like, pretend. Um, and people would buy it, you know. And be like, I'll operate on your brains, no problem. No. Um, and people would buy it. I just kind of had, like, a salesy, persuasive personality. So people would, would eat it up. And um, I just began to get 
you know, to, to try and get acceptance that way. But what happens when you do that? You know, if, if, you, uh, if you're fake, if you are always trying to get acceptance by being, you know, fake or not really who you are, um, it completely blocks any, you know, potential for real intimacy, right? Because I knew if, if you, even if you accept this person I'm pretending to be, you're just accepting this kind of, you know, figment of my imagination. It's not really me. So even though groups would kind of let me in, I knew that nobody really knows me and nobody really loves who I am. And uh, it was very, as Dan was describing, just kind of this very lonely feeling for, for different reasons. But um, so about, it, so it wasn't really working too well. You know, it's a different guy uh, for every group that I was involved with. Um, couldn't really feel loved, couldn't feel accepted. And about 12 years old, I just kind of became uh, the bad kid. Um, or that's probably 12 or 13. Again, this is all kind of happening real quick. But um, I got, I started smoking when I was 12. I got uh, drunk for the first time when I was 12 or maybe 13. Can't really remember. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe shouldn't remember. I don't know. Um, I got high for the first time when I was 13. And I just, I, you know, I was like, the wheels are just falling off at this point. Um, I then decided I was going to go after money because money was a real uh, motivator for me. I thought, Money will, you know, if I can be the guy that drives, uh, you know, up in the Ferrari, everyone will accept me and uh, think I'm cool. And so um, all that to say, this was just, you know, the trajectory of my life. Like, this was the direction I was headed. And I'm pretty sure I'd be, you know, by now, if, if nothing had changed, I'd be in prison or, or dead um, or just really wealthy. I don't know. Uh, but unhappy, I'm sure. I would have found out the Ferrari is not uh, all it's cracked up to be. Um, so I'm 15. I'm a complete jerk, uh, totally manipulative, doing all kinds of stuff I shouldn't be doing. And uh, I meet this girl named Aaron. And Aaron was overtly a Christian. And I decided, sorry, I'm checking my timer, cause, but then I lock my iPod thing. And it's just not, never mind. It's not a good idea. I sometimes think out loud. Um, so I meet this girl, right? So she's Christian, and I think she's good-looking, and I want to date her. So I, you know, I can play, I can play the game. I can be whoever I need to be. So I pretended to be a Christian and uh, started dating her, her family. Uh, I think they quickly realized I was lying. Um, for example, I went to uh, the first time they picked me up to go to church because I know this kid doesn't go to church, so he'll come with us. The first time they picked me up, I was, like, running around the house uh, that morning trying to find a Bible because – Christians like the Bible, so I needed to have a Bible. And all my dad had was this King James, like it was like a King James and uh, some other translation, like the parallel, you know, it's like two translations in one. So I already didn't know, like, how the Bible was divided up. And I've got this King James, and it's like, I was just so confused. So I couldn't find anything. Um, I asked where Genesis was, um, (laughs) which you should know it's the first one if you're a Christian. if you don't know anything, you know, you just know it's the first one. Um, that same, the first time I went to Sunday school, they made us all stand up and tell us, uh, tell the class our favorite Bible story or, uh, you know, Bible verse or whatever. I didn't know a verse. So I can remember as a kid, like hearing the story of Davy and Goliath. And I was sitting there, you know, like they're getting closer and closer to me. And I'm having, I'm going to have to stand up. And I'm like, crap, I don't know. I think it's probably David and Goliath. But I'm just going to go with what I know I heard. And so I stood up and was like, I love Davy and Goliath. And, and I sat down. And so I think real quick they knew 
that I uh, was not really a Christian. But um, this family just loved on me really, really well. And there was, you know, it's kind of anticlimactic in a sense because there's no, there's really no moment. Um, I don't have a, I don't have a moment that I know I became a Christian. Um, some of us, you know, can probably relate to that. It was just kind of this gradual change. But as I, uh, as I started to get to know this family, I started to, God, God really began to remove um, barriers in my life. Uh, he kind of put, you know, these rocks in my shoe. You know, you get a, you get a rock in your shoe, and it, it just kind of bothers you, and something's not right. And so He would do things like show me all Christians aren't hypocritical, right? These people, you know, this family uh, loved Jesus on, you know, when they were at church, and they loved Jesus like on a Tuesday when we were eating dinner. And so I thought, well, that's strange. Um, I thought money, you know, was just the supreme going to make you happy. And this family was just middle class, um, didn't have a lot. They didn't do a lot of extra stuff. And they were probably the happiest people that I'd met. And I also thought, well, that's quite odd. Um, you should be miserable, right? Because you don't have fake money that you can spend. Um, and all these little things started happening. And um, when, you know, it was about uh, early 17, um, I just began to realize that, you know, I've been trying for acceptance, and uh, I don't feel, you know, I haven't felt significant. I don't feel worthwhile, and I, I began to to realize as God started to reveal himself through my relationship with this family that, you know, I am significant. Um, if God's real, then God created things, and he created me, and so I am significant, and I'm, I'm worthy. Um, and if, you know, I'm loved, if, if God sent his son, if Christ came, uh, and and went to the cross, not you know, with my name in his hand, um, and he died, and and he took away my sin, and and he offers me this righteousness, this righteous standing before God, um, you know, so that he can he can look at me and he say, this is my son, uh, with whom I'm well pleased, and um, I realize that all these things I've been searching for and looking for, this is found uh, in in Christ, and this is found in God and in this whole Christian thing. And so there was, again, just kind of this season in life where I was not a Christian. And then early 17-ish, I became uh, a Christian. And I realized I am, you know, I'm the beloved. Um, I'm a treasure to God. And uh, so there's a little bit of a plot twist here. So I'm still uh, dating this girl. Um, her family is, is, you know, very much ministering to me and loving on me and uh, they started to do some Bible studies and um, just at their house a lot. And this is about six months after I became a Christian. And uh, a day before she turned 17, I was 17 at the time, she was killed in a car accident. Um, and so I'm at this place in life where I'm thinking, okay, again, it's a Christian culture. So you say, well, you're a Christian now. Everything should be fine, right? It's prosperity gospel all the way. And six months into it, my best friend is killed. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, well, that, this sucks. Like, this is not how it's supposed to be, right? Um, everything's supposed to work out. And I become a Christian God, and then you kill my best friend six months down the road. And so uh, I, can, I can remember going into, uh, into the wake. Um, you know, it's the, the viewing thing that you do. And I got to go with the family. Um, they let the family go early, you know, just because it's emotional um, I remember walking in the room and, in a, and in some ways, uh, saw my savior laying in a casket. Um, you know, I, I put so much 
kind of faith in that relationship and hope in that. And that, that was just Christ, you know, to me. That's how Christ showed himself to me. And um, I was just at a time where it was a very decisive, um, you know, I, I either need to keep going on with this Christian junk or I need to back out now. Um, this really makes sense just to kind of back out now because this isn't what I thought it would be really. Um, but there was another kind of rock of the shoe, just a very odd thing to me. And that's that as I, um, went through this time immediately after her death, um, I spent a lot of time with her parents and, uh, her parents still loved God. Uh, her parents still trusted in the Lord. They, they weeped and they mourned and they were angry and they were really angry. Uh, and they were just devastated. I, I knew if anybody was more devastated than I was, it was uh, this mother and father that, that lost their teenage daughter. Um, but they loved the Lord. They still uh, put their faith and their trust in him. And they, they told me he's still good and he's still in control. And we don't know why this happened. Um, and we probably never will. But our hope is in the name of the Lord. And that's where it will stay. And so that was a, a sizable rock. Um, very strange to me that that people could do this and um so i I was kind of at a point in my life you know there's there's a verse in um john six i think it's verse 66 um jesus is doing some hard teaching and a bunch of the disciples and and other people around listening and uh so he does this hard teaching then people just start walking away you know they're like screw this this is this guy's nuts he's saying all these hard sayings um, and so Jesus turns to his disciples, his, um, his disciples, and he says, are you going to leave too? And in verse, uh, I think it's 66, uh, Peter looks at him and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where am I going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so I, I was at a place where I can remember just waking up daily and, and thinking, God, if you want my head back on a pillow at night and you want me to care at all about you, you've got to. Uh, you've got to keep me. You've got to. You've got to hold on to me because I don't. I don't have it. You know, I can't do this. I can't just have faith in you. And people are telling me all kinds of stupid stuff. You lose somebody. Everybody tells you all kinds of stupid stuff immediately after. So, um, you know, I'm waking up and I'm just thinking uh, and saying to God, "You've got to. You've got to hold on to me uh, if you want me to stick around." And uh, that was ten years ago. So ten years later, he's he's held on. Um, and it, it's, it's been, you know, a lot of ups and downs, obviously God is still very much teaching me, uh, where my acceptance comes from. And, uh, I still have this propensity to kind of manipulate and, um, you know, be pew, 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 that kind of guy. And, uh, I've loved scum for that reason. You guys don't take my crap really too much. Um, again, you don't accept my fake Dan persona. So, uh, Ups and, ups and downs, times where I felt real close to the Lord and times where I felt very far away. But um, I do know, uh, and you know, with, with my kind of conversion story and immediately after, I can say that God is faithful. Uh, God is faithful. He will uh, keep you. We make a choice to allow him to hold on to us and to keep us. And he'll make good on his promises. And um, I have a verse, the uh, first half of Psalm 34, 6 is tattooed on my back, and it, it's uh, the verse, I'm totally in blanking on what it says, it's tattooed on my back, uh, sorry, yeah, I could take my shirt off like a Twilight movie and show you all, 
show you all what it says. Um, I was going to end with another verse. That's why I got confused. So Psalm 34, 6 says, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. Um, some translations say this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and he saved him from all his troubles. So uh, God is faithful. That's really all I could say. Um, so I appreciate you letting me share. Um, I love story night. It's a great night. Um, that's all. My name is Amber Skaggs, and um, a lot of you guys know me as a Texan, but I was actually born in Joplin, Missouri, 30 years ago. Most of my family still lives there, including my biological father, my mom's side of the family, my dad's side of the family. My biological parents got married when when they were 18 and had me six years later, but when I was eight months old, they got divorced. Uh, My mom and my stepdad got married when I was about four. And we moved to Dallas. So there's a saying in Texas is I wasn't born here, but I got here as quick as I could. And it's pretty true. Um, so I was raised as a Texan, and most of my life was pretty normal until I turned 12. And um, that's when my grandfather, my mom's stepdad, started molesting me. <laughs> Shortly after telling my mom what had happened, um, I started stuffing it and really wanted to believe that it wasn't that big of a deal and that it didn't really impact me now. However, it definitely was affecting me, and at times it still does. I was carrying the resentment of what had been done to me, and I was super bitter and angry. I was angry that my mother hadn't protected me from her abuser because she was molested by the same man. I felt as if I'd been thrown into a pit of hungry lions and hope for the best, and I hated her. Not only for the lack of protection, but that she told me that we had to keep this a secret and that we couldn't tell anyone, that it would destroy the family. But the secret was destroying me. So I kept the secret, and the secret kept me. My mom and my stepdad would often beat me and emotionally abuse me. mostly because she had carried her own secret for 30 years. Sometimes I didn't really mind the physical abuse because I knew that her own guilt would hurt her worse than my temporary physical pain, and I really wanted her to hurt. I thought she deserved it. In fourth grade, my stepfather and my mom got divorced, and I was scared and hurt. Um, I really wanted my family to stay intact, even though I knew it wasn't a safe and loving home. But the fear of change was really overwhelming. So my dad moved out, and things were pretty bad. (laughs) Every time we saw dad, he would cry and ask about mom, and I felt it was my sole responsibility to get my parents back together. So I played the middleman, and it worked. They got married again about 18 months after the divorce. So um, my real father was never really involved in my life. I desperately wanted him to be, but... He never really seemed capable of giving me a relationship, just like a drunken phone call a couple of days after my birthday. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but an alcoholic and a drug addict. 
And I just didn't, I didn't really realize it at the time, but all this like really affected my life. Um, so I basically just surrounded myself with a lot of friends and a lot of boyfriends. And I was built, even, even though I surrounded myself with the, those people, I really felt alone and, um, and angry, just super angry. So I lived out a bunch of lies, just kind of pretending to be somebody that I wasn't and just a lot of lies. But the biggest lie of all of them was that my sexual abuse wasn't affecting my life. I was holding on tight to that one. <laughs> um, but during all this time, it didn't, doesn't mean that I didn't believe in Jesus because I certainly believed, as I can back up, Evan, that when you live in Texas, everybody believes. So I believed because it wasn't much of a choice like you, you believe. <laughs> so um, I definitely believed, and I, had, I converted at age seven, but he didn't really mean that much to us. But that's the thing about, that's the thing about God. He never forsakes us. And it's really awesome now to know that he doesn't forsake me. But when I was out having sex with whomever I wanted to, having wild parties, judging others, putting people down to build up my own false pride, I really just wanted the Holy Spirit off my back. He kept reminding me that there was a better way, and it was super annoying. <laughs> At this point in my life, I hadn't been in a healthy relationship, and in fact, I felt like Tornado Amber had hit every man in my path. I would have a boyfriend until someone else came along that I thought was better, and I would cheat on him and move on to the next. It was a horrible cycle. Um, but I was so terrified of being alone. And, but I was even more terrified of being hurt. So I made the decision to never be vulnerable, and therefore no one would ever hurt me again. So it took about a year of convincing, but I had a really close friend named Michelle, and she... But she really wanted me to meet her brother, Kyle. And um, she really thought we were going to hit it off. I wasn't very hopeful about that. Um, but I knew that Michelle wasn't going to leave me alone. So I just agreed to it. And he looked pretty cute in the pictures that I saw. So, um, so I went to her house in March of 2003. And that will, is a night I will never forget. I walked into the door and um, I saw him reading a book to his niece and nephew and I was standing on the foyer, and um, I looked over at him, and I heard an, a voice. And it was as clear as day. And it said, he is the father of your children. I was totally freaked out. I got chills. I knew it was God, but, like, we weren't BFFs, so I didn't really know what that meant. And so I didn't say hi to Kyle. I just uh, didn't even make eye contact, actually. I just like hightailed it to the kitchen, like to uh, evade. And um, I went into the kitchen and told Michelle that I was pretty sure I was going to marry her brother. And um, she was really excited. <laughs> <laughs> and six months later, we got married. So um, it wasn't until I got married that I started experiencing some pretty serious flashbacks of my past sexual abuse. So I'd been sexually active prior to my marriage, but, um, it didn't, I didn't have flashbacks until I was actually in a vulnerable relationship. So, um, my husband Kyle just really didn't know how to help me and I needed help. Like I desperately needed help. I was terrified to deal with my past, but I was even more terrified of stuffing it down more. 
And at that time, Kyle and I were members and small group leaders at a church in Flower Mound, Texas. And they had just started a group called Celebrate Recovery. I didn't know anything about it, but my pain had become bigger than my pride. So I went to a meeting. For the first time in my life, I found a church, I found a place that I was loved and accepted. I found a safe place to hurt and to struggle. And the 12 steps that I went through in Celebrate Recovery changed my life. I was able to deal with what had been done to me and what I had done to myself. And I was forced to deal with a giant stack of resentments that I had against others, myself, and God. I had to deal with my victim mentality and the pain I'd caused others. It was a very difficult process. But through God's great mercy, I got better. Just took a while. <laughs> I was taught to be less selfish, to recognize the true emotion, and rather than just the anger all the time. And I learned to struggle well by surrendering my will to his, which took time. But um, the flashbacks went away, and things started looking up. So... I really wanted children. I'd always wanted children. I carried around a cabbage patch long before, long after I should have stopped, like eighth grade. Um, but I really wanted kids. And I was concerned about, I was concerned about my ability to conceive. But I really wanted to, I really knew that I wasn't going to be blessed with children until I was in a emotionally healthy place. So I finished the step study that I was going through with Celebrate Recovery, and I began sponsoring other girls who had been through what I had been through, and it was really awesome to give back. So we were ready to try for a baby, what, like whatever that means, <laughs> but we were ready. And so um, I had went to the doctor and talked to her about you know my medical issues, and she said that I was already looking at in vitro. So I felt like I got stabbed in the heart, and all this work to get me emotionally healthy and my plans for a family were just scattered. So I was so confused and scared, but, um, we ended up getting pregnant. So I was excited. I was really excited. Um, but two, two years later, I lost the baby and this was really painful for me and for Kyle. And the pain was overwhelming, but I finally had what I wanted and then I lost it. But because of recovery and because of the work that I had gone through, I learned and I stopped stuffing it. I wasn't going to stuff it anymore. And I was going to deal with the pain when it came rather than, you know, 10 years later. So God showed up in a really awesome way. He provided a really great support system and they listened to me and they prayed for me. Two months later, we got pregnant again with Zane, the little one on the stage earlier, um, uh, but after a miscarriage, it's really, really hard to get excited about having a baby. So it's completely robs you of your joy forever and ever. Um, but my hope was in the Lord and really where really he was. And I knew that, um, what he had told me that he was the father of my children. So I really believed it. And I knew that it was going to happen. I just didn't know how it was going to happen, but I had, I definitely had faith. Um, so Kyle and I wanted more children and we began trying like right after Zane. So we got pregnant again in October of 2007, but we kept this news to ourselves because of the past. Um, and I'm really glad that we did because we lost that baby on Christmas Day of 2007. It was a horrible loss, and Kyle took it really hard. 
We went to the doctor in effort to find out why this had happened again. And we had, she had drawn up some blood work and found out that I have a rare blood clotting disorder in addition to my endometriosis. So she told me at that time that I'm, that I was lucky to have ever had a baby. Um, I quickly changed her and said, no, it wasn't luck. It was, that's not luck. But, um, so she, she said that anybody who has this blood clotting disorder doesn't have living children. So I definitely know that my son is a miracle. But throughout these trials, I, I progressed really far into my recovery, but recovery is a process, and it takes time. I had been through the steps, and I had learned to forgive my abuser, myself, and God. I was holding tightly to that grudge against my mom. I blamed her for pretty much everything, and I had very little grace for her. But with the help of my sponsor and all of her prayers for me, I learned that forgiveness is a choice. It took time, but I learned that this unforgiveness that I was holding on to was really only hurting me. So my sponsor told me that forgiveness is a gift you give yourself. So I forgave her. I forgave her for not protecting me. I forgave her for manipulating me into keeping the secret of our past sexual abuse for physically abusing me, for being emotionally unavailable for me during our, my formative years, and for all the Christmases that I had to sit on my abuser's lap and pretend that it never happened. But it was like a moving a mountain. It forever changed the view. Throughout these, throughout these months, God continued to show his faithfulness to me. I found out that I was pregnant with Benjamin in January of 2009 while we were packing up our house in Texas to move to Denver. So why did I move to Denver? Um, my husband went to Denver Seminary, and he always wanted to come back. I had never lived outside of Texas, like knowing lived outside of Texas, but I was really excited about the change. And um, I had never been to SCUM, but I, um, we had been supporting Mike for years. And so we started like a three-year plan to move. And it took three years to pay off all of our debt. Three years. So we put our house on the market and um, we moved. My sponsor would tell me over and over to encourage me that um, I would be the catalyst for I would be the catalyst for change in my family. And that I needed to get healthy and that that would inspire others to get healthy. I wasn't really sure if that was true, but I was getting healthy either way. Because of the changes that God's made in me, all three of my parents went through the 12, same 12 steps that I've been through, and they all got healthy. Um, I really believe that what Satan had for destruction, that God had for his glory. I now struggle well. God has constantly reminding me of the chaos that I create when I'm on the throne of my own life calling all the shots. My daily prayer over the last six years has been the same. And it's been the same since I started recovery. And it's that, Lord, I just surrender my life to, do, to you today with all of its unknowns. And I just ask that the Holy Spirit would graciously remind me when I inevitably take back control. God continues to sanctify me and to bring glory to his name. I'm now leading a Celebrate Recovery step study here at SCUM. And I have the hope of...
a full program um, with weekly open share meetings, and I'm finally giving back rather than just taking everything that I think I deserve. Um, I have two beautiful boys that the doctor said I would probably never have, and I actually feel like I have purpose. I'm so grateful that my horrible story, painful story, has been others, and, um, but I still struggle. Some of my old coping mechanisms still come up, but I'm able to recognize the insanity um, a whole lot quicker, like a week or a couple of days or an hour rather than like 10 years. So, um, so I, I, being able to recognize the insanity helps me to surrender it more quickly and um, before it gets way out of control. So. so what I hope to share tonight with my story is that God is faithful and just, and he alone has the, help, has the power to help recover from the pain that we've, for the pain that we've caused ourselves, pain that um, the other people have inflicted. Okay, so I have a verse that just up everything that I feel, um, and I'll just read it real quick. My grace is enough for you. When you are weak, my power is made perfect in you. So I am very happy to brag about my weaknesses. Then Christ's power can live in me. For this reason, I am happy when my weaknesses, insults, and hard times, suffering, and all kinds of troubles for Christ. For when I am weak, I am truly strong. Thanks for listening.